In a stadium rich with tradition, the lights shine the brightest. This is the camp. Now, here's your host, Zach Heilprin, on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Welcome into the camp. Here on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network, I'm Zach Heilprin. He is the Athletics' Jesse Temple. As always, if you have a chance on whatever platform you get your podcast, rate, uh, subscribe, and if you want to leave a review, you can do that as well. We are back from Columbus. Badgers are as well. Um, a humbling trip, I'll say that, for Wisconsin. They fall 52-21 to 21 to Ohio State. A 31-point deficit The uh, that matches Paul Chris' biggest deficit of his career. The other one also happened at Ohio State in 2019. However, and we talked about this a bunch, Jesse, um, when we were down there, this 31-point deficit feels a little bit different than that one in 2019. Just based on what we saw, based on how the game played out, um, it was over before the end of the first quarter. Um, probably some people thought it was over after the first few minutes. Um, but it was uh, a really, really tough, tough effort from Wisconsin. And we'll give a cr- uh, credit to Ohio State, but we don't cover Ohio State. We cover Wisconsin, and we have to delve into to what went wrong, and there was plenty of it. I think it's safe to say it was an embarrassing performance from Wisconsin. Uh, certainly players should get some credit for not just waving the white flag and going out in the second half and scoring a couple of touchdowns, but the game was way, way over by then. And I think we should start with the knowledge that nobody really thought Wisconsin was going to win this game. You and I both talked about that on last week's show, Ohio state cream of the crop of the big 10, a perennial national title contender. And the Buckeyes showed why they came into that game, a 19 point favorite which was the largest point spread against the Badgers in the past 25 years. So it's not that Wisconsin lost. It is the way Wisconsin lost that really sticks out. As you said, the last time Wisconsin went to Columbus, the Badgers lost 38 to seven, but Wisconsin was down 10 to seven in the third quarter. Some of this is optics, I suppose, because in the end you could say, yeah, they still lost by 31 points both times, but the Badgers never even gave themselves a chance. If you went and got a drink or something, you probably missed four big plays from Ohio State's offense because that's how quickly the Buckeyes were able to move the ball. They they went down the field and had two touchdowns in the first six minutes, and Wisconsin certainly didn't help itself. Graham Mertz throws a back-breaking early interception on that miscommunication with Chimray DK. Then the offense goes three and out on consecutive drives. To me, this, this sums it up right here. Wisconsin didn't cross midfield until Ohio State had scored 28 points. It's 28 nothing, 90 seconds into the second quarter. The ball game is over. You never gave yourself a chance. And I think that is the thing that that stings the most. Not that you lost, the way you lost. Yeah, definitely. So I know you, uh, your post game, you know, usually sometimes you do observations, right? Like sometimes, you know, in the past, that's kind of what you've done. You know, just it, observations, what happened in the game. You don't always throw together a uh, extensive, a pit, I, don't, I don't want to call it opinion piece, a column, right? You don't mm-hmm. always do that, but you did after the game, and we're going to get to that, but the game itself, Ohio State had 539 yards. They had 52 points. The last time they put Wisconsin's given that kind of yardage and kind of points up is a night that every Wisconsin fan wants to forget. That, <laughs> you know... Um, that I think a lot of people probably do and have forgotten, or at least tried to forget. And that's the Big Ten Championship game in 2014 when they had 59 points and close uh, and over 580 yards of total offense. That was the type of performance. Now, Wisconsin obviously put 21 points on the board last night, but it mirrored that performance to an extent, especially early. So in my you know recap, I have a column that says what went wrong. And you, as you'd imagine, that thing was extensive. Um, the start, as you mentioned, down 28 points by the 13-minute mark of, this, of the second quarter. The offense, obviously, didn't do much. You had the Graham Mertz interception. You had, you know, obviously, Braylon Allen got loose for 165 yards, but most of that came when the game was already decided, especially that 75-yarder. Otherwise, three around 3.4 yards a carry from the running game. The passing game... You know, obviously almost non-existent. Graham Mertz, 94 yards passing. The 
second fewest he's had in a start. The other one, when he threw the ball eight times against Purdue last year. The defense. My goodness. Jim Leonard got shredded. He had no answers. Zero answers whatsoever. They couldn't stop the run. Travion Henderson, Mayan Williams combined for 222 yards, close to seven yards a carry between the two. They're the first two. I mean, they both went over 100 yards. I mean, Mayan Williams, the first one to do it. He had it, you know, he had it at the half and he was the first one to top 100 yards against the Badgers since Mo Ibrahim back at the end of 2020. To have 200, two 100 yard guys, you have to go all the way back to the Rose Bowl of 2012. I'm, you were at that one, right? Where Oregon went up and yes. down the field against them with the Anthony Thomas and uh, who was it? Uh, uh, LaMichael James, like that's the type of territory this defensive performance was at. They could not stop the run. They could not stop CJ Stroud uh, when they were in position to stop them. They couldn't get guys on the ground. It, I mean, I think I was kind of concerned about the, the tackling performance to, of Wisconsin to this point. Um, we saw issues against New Mexico State. We saw issues against Washington State. And those came to fruition in big time fashion against Ohio State. I mean, just from the top to the bottom, Jesse, the performance for them was bad and some of the worst we've seen from them in quite some time. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm not I think I try to not pull punches and be honest with my assessment um, when we see this team. And you, sometimes you have to call a spade a spade. It was a truly awful performance from Wisconsin. And I understand that a lot of college football teams probably would have experienced something similar. But this is a Wisconsin team that we've seen has, has come close and they were nowhere near close. You look at that first quarter and Ohio State finished with 12 plays that went for at least 10 yards. So the fact that Ohio State only finished with 539 yards is a minor miracle because they had 210 yards after the first quarter. They were on pace for 840 yards. To me, the play that a play that stands out from that game is you mentioned mine, Williams, the run that he had before he scored to give Ohio State a 28-0 lead. It was third and three at the Wisconsin 24. He takes the carry. Jordan Turner misses a tackle in space. Max Lofi comes up, misses the tackle in, in some space, and then Williams gains 21 yards to set him up with a goal line situation, and, and he scores. They just they repeatedly couldn't deal with the speed and space. And the other thing from a defensive standpoint that I think stood out very early you saw Wisconsin play some zone and there were just wide open spaces. And even Paul Chris said after the game, there were other situations where like Wisconsin was in man defense and they were just letting way too much space. It was so easy. I realize Ohio state can make you look bad and make things look tremendously easy. That's why they're a national title contender and Wisconsin is it. But as we said, going into the week to give yourself a chance, you have to play near perfect football and it was the exact opposite for Wisconsin. Basically, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And even the punting game. Wisconsin has one of the best punters in college football. Had an off day. Had a couple shanked punts. One went 23 yards. One went 18 yards. So there was no phase of football where Wisconsin legitimately gave itself a chance to win. No, I mean, it was stepping off the bus. And that was essentially the best thing they did all night um, was, <laughs> was you know, make it into the, into the stadium. But, it, yeah, again, I, I don't want to be – so pessimistic about what happened, but it's so difficult not to be, right? I mean, just the way that things played out, they didn't even give themselves a chance. They, Washington State, they, they killed themselves time and time again. Um, Ohio State, obviously, is super talented. C.J. Stroud has so many different weapons. They, their offensive line w was dominant. I mean, I, I, Wisconsin hasn't gotten gashed on the ground like that probably since the last time they faced Ohio State. But... Um, you know, because it's kind of just what they do, but this was at a, just at a different level. So, you know, when I when I think about just the overall arching feeling coming out of that game, you walked in knowing knowing that th it was going to be a very difficult matchup, and by the end of the first drive, you're like, it's going to be one of those nights. It's just going to be one of those nights uh, yeah. where Ohio State does what it wants, and Wisconsin has zero answers for it. So, I, I mean, some of the other th you, you talked about the punt. Right, the the twenty three yard punt from Andy Vujinovic, Vujinovic, excuse me. Uh, when it was twenty one to nothing, Wisconsin had done nothing to stop them whatsoever, not even slowed them. I believe they were averaging over eleven yards of play at that point. And it's fourth and two. It's the first time Wisconsin, you know, had some success and and got a first down and moved the ball. And what happens instead of going for it on fourth and two near midfield? Paul Chris punts it. It's a twenty three yarder to Wisconsin's thirty three and. About six plays later, 
Ohio State's in the end zone. He, Paul Chris ta- asked, I asked him about it after the game. We were, we were hoping, hoping to be able to pin them deep, get a stop, and get the ball back with some good field position. There was nothing to lead me to believe, and there shouldn't have been anything that left him to believe that there was any chance of them getting a stop defensively. Like, I mean, that you, you can't, it's fourth and two near the, near the, near, near midfield. And I know this goes back perhaps to, you know, the Washington State game, though it's certainly in a different situation. But I mean, in the moment, it felt like a white flag. Um, <laughs> certainly, certainly Paul Chris would never say that, but it felt like in the moment that's what it was. And, you know, I don't, they, they went into that game, everyone talking about how they had nothing to lose, right? Like that was the battle cry. It, it felt like Ohio State was playing with nothing to lose. They were playing free. They were playing open. They were playing hard. And I'm not saying Wisconsin wasn't playing hard, but they, they were, came in as an underdog, a huge underdog. And yet it, they, it felt like they played with very little emotion. And again, things kind of rolled down the, the hill and it snowballed one after the other, but a very concerning effort all around. And I mean, I, what about the penalty? The penalty that Paul Chris didn't accept giving Ohio State the ball at the 37-yard line. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? The um, the illegal formation penalty on Ohio State. He explained it, and it was this is this goes to it was just one of those nights, right? The official said the ball is going to be at the four, no matter what, which obviously was not the case, and it shouldn't have been shouldn't have been that way. And instead of like getting to the bottom of it, and instead of being like, absolutely not, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play another play until we figure this out. You come over here and talk to me because they they do it through the headset. They, the official didn't come over and talk to him. It was like the sideline official that came over and talked to him. And they're like, nope, this is where it's going to be. And he didn't want to punt it again. So he got the ball to 37. And obviously they went right down and, and uh, scored again. So, I mean, I, it, it is a, a comedy of, uh, of errors, but they got outclassed uh, from top yeah. to bottom. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily agree with your uh, thought that punting in that fourth down situation was essentially waving the white flag to me. It was more of a tactical decision based on what Paul Christ felt was best for the situation. Like it's fourth and two, you're on your side of the field. If you don't get it, the way it's 21 to nothing, it's 21 to nothing. No, you don't. It's 21 to nothing. (laughs) You are not, you are not in this game. You're down three scores already. It's fourth and two. This was your best opportunity to have any kind of a scoring drive and maybe, maybe, maybe make it a game. Instead, you try and punt the ball back Put your defense back on the field that's been absolutely not very good, could not stop them, and you try to pin them deep? What? You're down 21. You need, to, to, you need to score some points. No, I totally get it. But the idea that the coach is essentially saying, I give up and we No, no, give that up was in my just, mind. That was in my mind. Right. That, yeah, I, I'm, I'm saying That's that. what I'm saying. I, I don't – that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm just – sharing my point of view from you saying that, like, I don't look at it that way at all. I totally understand why it could have been valuable to go for it because they had to move the ball. They couldn't stop a nosebleed in the words of uh, uh, Bart Scott from way back in the day. But I, I, it's not like the worst decision out of everything that happened in that game. I don't think it would have made any difference. But um, to the larger point, I think the real gut punch here for Badgers fans is just it goes back to the idea of not just that Wisconsin lost, but like they just didn't even seem prepared. Um, and I think it's tough maybe right now as we're dissecting this to separate, is this just an Ohio State problem? <laughs> and I know we'll get into that because Wisconsin's record of late hasn't been particularly great. Um, Ohio State likely would have done this to a lot of teams, but they knew the challenge that they were going to face. Jim Leonard specifically talked to the team earlier in the week about embracing this opportunity and recognizing that, yeah, you're going to go in there and it is not going to be anything like what you faced this season. Certainly not what you thought it was going to be like a week ago when you were going to play New Mexico state. So get ready for that moment right now. So you don't basically go onto the field and be shell shocked by the moment. And Wisconsin was still shell shocked by the moment. It just seemed like, they just seemed unprepared. And I think that's part of the gut punch here is it goes back to how Wisconsin lost. It was, I think I put this in my story. It was a failure on every level, quite frankly. In the past, I think a lot of people would point to like, say you know, the, the offense didn't look prepared. The offense wasn't in, in rhythm, couldn't get in rhythm. They, they, they looked lost. You don't normally hear that about a Jim Leonard defense, right? You don't right. normally, you, you wouldn't normally say they look lost. They looked unprepared. What does that say about, where they are as defense. I, I'll so obviously well known that I was very high in the defense coming into this year. And this game certainly um, 
my confidence has taken a little bit of a hit, and I'm I, I am now going to take a step back and admit finally that they're not going to be anywhere close to last year's defense. That said, based on what the the type of defense they played last night, it wouldn't really have mattered. Uh, what I, mean, I shouldn't say it. I mean, Leo Chanel, Jack Sanborn, maybe they they tackle a little bit better than some of the inside linebackers, but mm-hmm. um, it is uh, it's confusing that a Jim Leonard defense looks like that. It's e- extremely uncharacteristic, and um, I imagine that his weekly media availability will be very interesting because he's always honest with us, gives us strong answers, and he'll be, I imagine, quite critical of of his performance and and. And I don't even know the thing is what what could you have done better from a uh, coaching them up standpoint because Ohio State is just they just have better players <laughs> and they made Wisconsin look terrible. Yeah, Wisconsin shot itself in the foot defensively with it, it seemed like the coverages that they were playing in certain situations and the inability to tackle. Um, I don't, and this is maybe for a point later in the show, but I, I still look at this Big Ten West and think, man, it's completely wide open. Like, not that this game. I completely discard it because it is a conference loss and Wisconsin did look terrible, but I still think this defense has the pieces in place to be able to keep Wisconsin in every game, the rest of the season. It just, you're right though. Extremely uncharacteristic from, I mean, it's the most points lent a Leonard coach defense has ever given up. Um, The previous high, I believe was 44 against Purdue. And that was the triple overtime game. So you just, you don't often see this. You don't. And so I I guess, is there anything you wanted to hit on the on the the game? Because at this, I mean, uh, it, go ahead. Sorry. No, I think we've covered it. I, I, you know, I get the sense that it's more about, and part of why I wrote this the column as opposed to a straight takeaway story is the games like this offer. Um, it is a marking point, a marker for where you are as a program, and so to me, it's more about the bigger picture of, okay, Wisconsin lost this game. What does this loss mean? What does it mean in the grand scheme of things? What's it mean for Paul Christ? What's it mean for the the program and the, and the future? So I imagine that's where we're headed in this show because it's what people want to talk about. It's exactly where we're headed. And I did not think sitting here on September 25th that we would be this would be a podcast looking at the future of this program and discussing where the status of this program is. I wasn't expecting to do that this early. I remember we did it after the season last year. I guess I wasn't. Ah, I I just wasn't expecting to have to do it this early, and mm-hmm. yet here we are. I asked for questions after the game last night. I got forty-eight questions, <laughs> as you'd know, and as you'd expect. Kind of like when you do a mailbag, at least half of them are about Paul Chris and his job status, yeah, and where this program is at. And it goes back to that, as you mentioned, the, the thirty-one points. This thirty-one point deficit, while the exact same as two thousand nineteen feels completely different. The program from where it was heading into that Illinois game a week before the Ohio State game to where it is now is uh, the the record certainly indicates it, but it it feels like it's nowhere close to where it was in 2019, despite the fact that it was the exact same deficit. So my follow story off this game looks at some of these bigger picture questions that runs early in the week. And obviously the, the hashtag that seems to have emerged is the fire Chris and, and you know, fans, obviously they want to make decisions right away that an athletic department generally would not make, but that has been a question that keeps coming up and you do look at some of the records. And, and I think that's why we're having this conversation. Wisconsin is 13 and 10, if I'm not mistaken, against big 10 teams dating back to that Illinois loss in 2019, where Wisconsin was a 30 and a half point favorite. And the Badgers are four and 10 against ranked opponents since that time. And sometimes you can kind of cherry pick these stats, but that is a relatively large body of work. And that's why we're having this discussion. And one of the things I said is Paul Christ is making $5.25 million a year. And when you make that much money and you're the head coach of a power five program at a public university, especially one that's had success for a sustained period of time, you have to be held accountable for your failures. That's why he's being asked about what his message to fans would be after the loss um, because people were wondering about the direction of the program, even before the Ohio state loss. So that's kind of where we're at right now in terms of like the program and what Paul Christ has done. My thought behind this is, and I, 
I don't know whether you'll agree or not, but I, I think that you might is he's earned the right, at least to me, I won't speak for you to show how he can help this team respond from sustained adversity because he is 67 and 25 overall. He is 43 and 17 in, in big 10 games. And I know that a lot of that success came earlier in his tenure, four of his first five seasons, he won 10 plus games. But I think Chris McIntosh is not going to make a rash decision. Wisconsin is not going to operate like other programs. And the knee-jerk reaction or the thing we've been hearing for weeks is, well, why don't they just hire Jim Leonard as the head coach? I think it's you, there's no guarantee that making a move drastically alters the trajectory of the program. Certainly Leonard's accolades as a coach to this point are outstanding. He's also coming off his worst performance as a, as a defensive coordinator. But on the whole, I don't see Wisconsin making a move away from a coach who's won 72.8% of his games. And I kind of use the basketball analogy two years ago when Greg Gard's team went 18 and 13 with that disappointing year and the, the seniors never lived up to expectations. There was a lot of fire guard talk. There's been a lot of fire guard talk for years. And he comes back with a team last year that obviously wins a big 10 regular season championship after being picked 10th. I think at this point, Chris has a lot of work to do. He's acknowledged and he acknowledged after the game Saturday that nobody was more disappointed with the results than, than people in the program. He's got to win. But the other thing I'd mentioned is you run the risk of becoming Nebraska. If you make a decision and it totally backfires, like look at, look at Bo Pelini, Zach, he was 66 and 27. And I know there was other stuff going on. Um, he'd kind of worn out his welcome, but when the athletic director at the time, Sean Eichhorst fired him, he said it was because quote, we weren't good enough in the games that mattered End quote, they're 35 and 51 since then. And now they're looking for another head coach. So I just think that's kind of a cautionary tale out there of what can happen when you just make a decision to get rid of somebody who has had success, that it doesn't always become better. So this kind of rambling diatribe, I suppose, uh, I'll, I'll sum it up by saying, I, I think while things haven't gone great of late, he's earned the opportunity and the right to see this out. And, and you know, let's evaluate this after the season. If, if Wisconsin response can get back to the Big Ten championship, and I'm not saying that's going to happen. I think we'll be having a little bit different discussion. A couple things. People have been calling, uh, uh, I don't know about calling out, but calling for the media to hold Paul Christ accountable, hold him accountable. <laughs> first of all, you know, first of all, I have a bias on that comment because that's what we do. <laughs> right. F- first of all, he was asked last night, Jim Polzine asked him straight up. The, the people coming, even before this game, people were concerned about the direction of the program. What is your message to them? And then he offered his message um, to them. You know what? I'll th- here, I'll throw it in. The audio is not great, but I'll throw it in here right now, and you can you can hear exactly what he said, um, what his message would be to the people that are concerned and people that do want him out. So here's that. There are a lot of fans that are concerned about the direction this program is trending, and that was before tonight. What is your message to those people? Well, I mean, my message to to our team is, you know, yeah, we, we don't want to be where we're at right now, you know, but we've got an opportunity to go forward. And, you know, I, I care about our fans, but what I care most about is our team. And I feel good about the group of guys that I get to be around and coach and appreciate and feel good about the, the staff that get to work with. And and I get, I get uh, people not being happy with where we're at right now. Um, they're no more disappointed than I think anyone in the program is. But I also know that, you know what, we come back and, and we gotta go we got to bounce back from this stuff, and that, that, that's part of it. And, uh, you know, want to want to have a team that people are proud of, right? But uh, biggest concern is getting our guys to, to play good football. I don't think that's going to make people feel better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but he, was, he, was, he at least answered it in the best way that Paul Chris can answer a question. However, my second point in listening to your message, at what point – does it become something where you can question his job status? Yes. Like, like where, totally where, question. where does it need to get to before you're willing to um, say, I, I think they probably should, um, you know, maybe not extend his 
I mean, now you, they'll never make him a lame duck coach, but like, at what point does it say Chris McIntosh has to genuinely, genuinely look into the deepness of this and, and where things are, and 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 whether Paul Chris can turn it around or whether um, maybe somebody else needs to be uh, whether it needs a new voice. Again, I'm not at that point. I know mm-hmm. it's clear Wisconsin's not at that point. You're not at that point. But what is what, where is that line? My thought that it is even if Wisconsin has a year where the Badgers go, you know, seven and five or eight and four, kind of like Wisconsin did last year at a the eight and four regular season. I don't even think then there's going to be <laughs> um, an, an urgency to make an immediate change. To me, it's are you slipping backwards to a point where you're not even competitive for championships within the big 10 West? And that might be two more seasons of this. I, I, I'm willing to give Wisconsin somewhat of a pass for what happened in 2020, just because of all the things that stacked up against the Badgers during an unprecedented time in, in the history of, of sports and, and beyond. But last year you see that they, they can't close the deal against Minnesota. If this team can't close the deal against Minnesota again, and they're slipping further behind some other programs, and then they do it again next year, like, you know, that's a window. That's a block of three or four years where you are not at the level that you once were. Um, so that's kind of my thought process is I would like to see how the rest of this season goes. And frankly, the next season as well, that may, that may not be good enough for fans who are extremely frustrated and want change now, but that that is not how this is going to work at Wisconsin. It's it's just not. So if that's your expectation right now, you're going to be severely disappointed. I, I, you know, we're all I think waiting to see how this program responds. But it's notable that we're even having this conversation because the end of last year it wasn't about it wasn't about Paul Chris' job security as a head coach. It was about it, it certainly wasn't to me. So I, I won't speak for you again. But it wasn't about his job security. It was about what changes is he going to make within his staff to try to get them back to where they needed to be? Because that was so evident. Um, but now it's kind of moved farther up the chain as the man of the program that is continuing to not necessarily live up to, to what people's expectations are having this discussion. And I think that that sort of speaks to the rut that they're in at this time. But I'm, I'm eager to hear your thoughts on what it would take for you to perhaps feel a little bit more, um, confident or whatever the right word may be in discussing what would come next. I think you're completely right about the Nebraska thing and, and becoming, you know, someone or, or a program that's like, is looking back and saying, Oh gosh, I still, I wish we hadn't done that. I wish we hadn't fired that guy. Then again, I, I mean, Nebraska would Nebraska ever be happy winning not eight, nine games a year. No, their expectation level is different, but right. They got rid of a coach who consistently won nine plus games. Even before that, go back to Frank Solich. Uh, yeah, he won. He won nine plus games, I think, every year but one. And then they hired Bill Callahan, who only won nine games one time. So the point is, sometimes these coaching hires can be a bit of a crapshoot. And what you have that you may think isn't good enough in the rearview mirror may have been better than than what you have moving forward. And and I just think that that's something to keep in mind, even though people want more. And I'm not saying they're wrong to want more and expect more. I think some people would would say some of the things I have said are maybe overreactionary to, to what happened this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I, me personally, I think it's uh, really started in the second half of the 2019 season. Yes. Uh, for, for me personally, where it was and now where it is, um, especially considering some of the recruiting classes they brought in, in that time period, it's, it's probably reckless and, and not very smart to make, huge sweeping declarations off a loss to Ohio state because Ohio state does that what happened the other night uh, to a lot of teams, but is Wisconsin closer now to winning the big 10 West or winning the big 10 than they were in 2019. And I think the overwhelming answer is no. And it's not like it's going to get any easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think making this even more difficult for Wisconsin fans, maybe some, maybe not all, but some is what's happening at Minnesota right now. Yes. Uh, you know, the way that they played, they go on the road, Smack Michigan State. Michigan State's, I don't think, very good, but they they went and did that. And, you know, the way that program is looking at this moment would, uh, you know, the future of that program appears, appears on an upward trajectory and where Wisconsin is going the other way, right? Like that's that's where uh, I think 
maybe you would disagree with me. Um, I, I find it. Uh, we kind of talked about this after the Washington State game. It's very difficult for me to to make an argument that it's not uh, sliding and, and and going down at this point. But as you said before, there's a lot of time left this season. They did the this exact same thing last year, uh, where they fell down. And last year it was one touchdown, you know, or not one touchdown. One they were one in three, and you know, obviously fought their way all the way back, and then laid an egg at Minnesota. But I would not wait as long as you. Meaning think, you make a change after this season if they went seven and five? No, no. But you're saying like you're saying it's going to be two seasons before you can start questioning it. And I think you could start questioning it after this year uh, if if they are unable to uh, right the ship and they say they finish six and six or well, that's, seven. Yeah, that, or that's seven even and, worse than I imagined. Or seven. And, well, I mean, we'll get to our Twitter questions. But there's not exactly a lot of wins. You could, there's not a lot of games you can point to and say, yep, that's a win based right based on right now. Uh, again, this is a, a team that has been able to bounce back in recent seasons and, and figure things out and go on runs. And so I don't want to say that that's not going to happen here. Usually it coincides with games against Rutgers or Northwestern or, you know, that that's what, what they went on last year where they kind of got right. And then they beat, you know, beat Purdue and then beat Iowa. Like all those, like those, those things certainly happened last year and it's possible they could happen again this year. However, I think if it, if it ends up being like seven and six or six and seven, I mean, yeah, you have to start questioning at the, at the end of the year. Not that you make a change, but he the the change to the offseason or the change in the, the coaching staff last offseason was a huge, huge shift for Paul Chris. And it's a huge, huge shift for the program to make those moves because he knew something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And people are like, all right, we'll make those moves and we'll see what happens. Those moves have happened, and yet here we still are talking about the direction of this program. And so the next the next logical step is to question the man that put that staff together, who's put this team together, and at least open our eyes to the idea that he is not infallible and he has, you know, he can't he can be questioned, uh, and his job status can be questioned if it doesn't quickly, quickly turn around this year. Again, I'm, they're not gonna make a move. They're not it's it's not gonna happen. Um, I think it, yeah, it's not going to happen unless he walks away. It's not going to happen. So, uh, but I would certainly, certainly think if it, if it goes that way the rest of the year, the questions are legitimate and the hot seat would be probably pretty warm heading into next year. I think what we're saying is not all that different. Um, the idea of questioning <laughs> what the future holds for a team that winds up six and seven or seven, six, which as I said, would be worse than maybe what I thought the record would be at the end of the season. Um, that's totally fair game. And yet questioning is not the same as actually making the move. Um, to me, that still would be a couple years away if things continue in this direction. For me, I think the next question that is an offshoot of the discussion that we're having is the idea or the question is, ha- has Wisconsin hit its ceiling as a program? Because to me, that's what this all comes back to. And that's why there is so much frustration in the big picture outlook because it's, you know, it's the best the Badgers can do a 10-win season, Big Ten West title, go to the league championship game, lose, and not go to the college football playoff. Um, that's a lot better than <laughs> what most other programs accomplish. And at the same time, I think Wisconsin is in a fascinating place in the college football landscape because they're high, like where they are in the hierarchy is they've been a very good program, but not quite great. And so it seemed like they were close to getting over the hump and getting to that level. And they haven't to this point. And you mentioned before, one of the interesting aspects of this is they are coming off this run where they had the three best recruiting classes that they've had during the online ranking era, 2019 to 2021. And a lot of those players, Joe Titman, Logan Brown, Trey Wedig, Nick Herbig, Graham Mertz, Braylon Allen, they were on the field Saturday. It didn't make any difference. <laughs> um, Wisconsin, as you said, no, not closer to getting to the Big Ten championship to winning that than they were in 2019. And some of these guys are playing. I thought it was interesting when Jim Leonard was asked about the gap between Wisconsin and Ohio State last week. He talked about how it, recruiting is such a huge piece. And if he had the answers to how you close the gap, then Wisconsin would be doing it. But to him, he said it, it comes back to you've got to have a culture and a place where kids want to play and they're willing to challenge teams like Ohio State. And then you coach the hell out of them and develop them. 
And I think that's where this falls into this discussion is recruiting is so, so important. And sure, for years, Wisconsin has been able to have success. Paul Chris, most successful teams came with players that weren't in those top 20, top 30 recruiting classes. But just look, if you're looking to the future and looking for a sign of hope, I think you're going to be disappointed with, with where things stand because the 2022 class ranked 11th in the Big Ten. The 2023 class currently ranks 12th. There isn't a four-star prospect in that class. There were only two in 2022, one of whom, Isaac Ham, hasn't academically qualified yet. And so, to me, you still got to be able to keep pace and consistently build those recruiting classes. And it's not even about trying to keep pace with Ohio State. It's about trying to keep pace with all these other Big Ten teams. You mentioned Minnesota and the run that the Gophers on. If you get surpassed by them, that's where you're in a spot where you're. In, I think you're in big trouble as a program. And so... To me, what the ceiling is, I think having the college football playoff expand to 12 teams sort of changes my idea of what the ceiling is for Wisconsin, because now there could potentially be an opportunity for them to get in. If you go back to the BCS era since 98, they had they would have been in eight different seasons. So I think Wisconsin is the type of program that can benefit from that. But I that's my idea of what the ceiling is for Wisconsin is sort of like for those years where we talked about, can you give yourself a chance to win a big 10 championship. Can you give yourself a chance to, to get into the playoff? It's not, it's not, can you win a national championship? There's only a handful of teams that can do that. That's just where college football is at, but it's a real, it's a reasonable question to ask right now. I think about what, what is the ceiling for this program moving forward? And do you feel, do you feel better now about what that ceiling can be? Or do you feel worse? And I think from what we've seen and, and maybe it's where the recruiting classes are. I, I don't think you feel better right now. Well, it's kind of like we said after the Washington State game. Uh, fans have come to expect something and yes. um, and get to a certain level, and uh, they are further away from that level now than they were three years ago. And can that be turned around? I mean, it's certainly possible, um, but they haven't. Yeah. It really is based on your expectations. And mm-hmm. again, no one, I shouldn't say no one, uh, no one realistically thought Wisconsin was going to go into Ohio State and win, right? Nobody, nobody, I mean, they're, they're underdogs for a reason, that big of underdogs for a reason. Nobody thought that. So it's not like you can sit here and say, I'm making these assumptions or these these uh, d- decisions or thoughts based on what I saw on Saturday night. But you at least thought they were going to be somewhat competitive. They weren't competitive at all. And it, it's on the heels of what happened against Washington State. Some duds, man, right? Like in the, the duds have happened maybe a little bit too often, uh, in the last three seasons. Um, and you, I mean, if you want to go back to 2019, you can throw that in. You can throw the Illinois game in there as well. But I just look at it and say, right now where this program is, is not where it probably should be. And uh, again, two and three and one versus two and two, does it look a ton different? No, but when you look deep into it you, and you see what happened, it's concerning. So um, yeah, we'll, we actually have plenty of questions to get to here in the Twitter segment. Let's start with Chris. He uh, asked, why are Badger fans acting like the sky is falling, even though the game played out exactly like we all expected the game to play out? I kind of agree. Kind of agree. But as we just mentioned, it's not about just this game, right? It's about what we've seen over the last three years. Maybe that's why maybe some people think the sky is falling. Yeah, I think if you go back three years when Wisconsin lost 38-7 and, and Chase Young had four sacks and I think five sacks overall, it, there was a different vibe. That team was nationally ranked, even though that was the second consecutive loss off the off the uh, Illinois upset previously. It's how Wisconsin lost against the backdrop of two weeks ago, you laid an egg against Washington State. Last season, you lost to Minnesota in a game that – uh, determined who won the West. You handed it to Iowa the year before was a disaster for multiple reasons. So it's all of these things stacked on top of each other. Um, and this isn't a breaking point by any means because the result was expected, but everything adds up to get, I think fans to this point where they feel like this is not <laughs> the program that I remember watching a few years ago. Uh, Ryan says, while there were plenty of miscues and shortcomings to go around, to my eye, the weakest position group on the field was Wisconsin's inside linebackers. Uh, did the situation with Coach Sheridan set back the growth and development of this unit? 
I don't know how much that really set the group back. I mean, Jordan Turner has talked about this and I've asked him about it, that he really didn't feel like it was that big of a deal. Certainly the, it, it can't be easy as a player to have three position coaches in the span of a handful of months, but one change happened in between seasons. So they, they it's not like they played two games and then had to adjust on the fly, like a shades of Mike Marcuson way back when with the offensive line. Um, I just think you you've got guys that are filling roles that they've never done before. And there is some talent there, but I also think that there's also some learning on the fly. I think Muma John Meta has, racked up a lot of tackles, but this is the most extensive action that he's ever had. He played 58 snaps last season. Yeah, he's been in the program four years, but it's a totally different role. Jordan Turner played, what was it, 24 snaps last season, and there was a lot to like about it, but you're asking them to do things that they've never had to do here. And so I just think that that takes time, and we're coming off a season where we saw the best (laughs) inside linebacker tandem in the country. So I don't dispute the the notion that the inside linebackers really struggled. They really struggled with tackles. I highlighted one of the plays where Turner had a chance and missed on the tackle. I, I just I also think this defense as a whole has a lot of new pieces. And it almost makes you appreciate just how good they've been consistently every year, despite a lot of turnover in different seasons. It it doesn't just happen. And I think we we saw that against Ohio State. Yeah, I uh, am guilty of just saying, ah, you know, look at these, look at the talent they have back. This the defense line gonna be just fine without Matt Heddington. Linebackers, yeah, they're probably not gonna be as productive with uh, Mubajong Meta and Jordan Turner as they were with, you know, uh, Leo Chanel and Jack Sanborn. But they'll be they'll be fine. They'll be fine. And you know, the uh, the outside linebackers, there's five guys who could start. I mean, I don't think we've seen. <clears throat> So don't certainly don't think that's been the case to this point. Um, yeah, the playmaking playmaking has been lacking uh, from that outside linebacker spot. Even Nick Kirby, you know, was held without a sack yesterday uh, for the first time in five games. The uh, four games, the secondary, the injuries that they're dealing with. Um, you know, oh yeah, it's it's gonna be fine. They're gonna plug in these three seniors, uh, senior you know transfers. Everything's gonna be good to go. Obviously, that has not been the case. So just uh, the defense in general overall has been, I think, a, I don't want to call it a disappointment. They, they haven't lived up to where I thought they could be. And uh, that's not on them. That's on me. Uh, I, I pus, placed way too many, too many high expectations on that group than, uh, than, I, than probably should have. And there's going to be growing pains. And maybe by the end of the season, they'll be a, a very, very good group because it is you know, extremely young in places, uh, specifically at the linebacker spot. But they didn't have a good game yesterday. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. They did not play well. Um, I still think it's going to wind up being a really good defense. And I still think they're going to give Wisconsin a chance to win every game the rest of the season. I, I really do believe that. And, you know, every team deals with injuries. But Hunter Wohler, he's out. Alexander Smith, who Hank Poteet said was his best corner, hasn't played yet. Those things can add up. when you st- And you tack on the fact that you lost all those players and you're asking guys to fill new roles like at inside linebacker. I think you're to your point, you're seeing that it's just <laughs> it doesn't always work out the way that you think just because they've got Jim Leonard there. Yep. Um, South Jersey Pete asks, I didn't see Marcus Allen. Was he out? He wasn't injured, but I didn't see him either. I don't know. I don't know if you have the access to the pro football focus snaps, but that's what I was um, going to do. I just didn't want you to hear the clicking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, so I'm I mean, gonna look was, it up right now. I yeah, was I mean, looking he, at it earlier. He, I mean, he was limited. I mean, he got he got dinged up against Washington State. Um, mm. Was was certainly farther down the list of uh, of guys against New Mexico State. So it, it's possible yeah. that it, that's got pushed back a little bit. Well, the Pro Football Focus numbers say that Marcus Allen played two snaps on offense. Uh, yeah. I. Based on what we've seen of him, I have to imagine that that is probably health-related. Um, I'm speculating, but he's had some really strong moments. So, I mean, Chimray DK played 51 offensive snaps, so that's the most among your wide receivers. Keontes Lewis played 27. But I, mean, I, I think we also saw a lot of, like, 
you know, we saw them and we haven't talked about this yet, that they broke out the Wildcats. So now Graham Mertz is lining up out wide. You've got Braylon Allen there. They had they had Allen and Malusi in the backfield at the same time. So you run some of these different formations and it's probably going to change the snap count. Skylar Bell played 41 snaps. So that's an interesting wrinkle that we didn't discuss specifically from the game. Not didn't necessarily work, but uh <laughs> That's my assumption on Marcus Allen at this point. And, and, uh, and we may be able to ask about that early in the week. Yeah. Uh, obviously probably would have asked about the Wildcats if uh, Braylon Allen had been available after the game uh, <laughs> in a, in a very <clears throat> odd twist. The only players available. So usually what do you say? Get like 10 players. Yeah, they're not stingy on on making players yeah. available. Um, yeah. Oftentimes for one-on-ones for reporters, we, we have a chance to request just inside baseball, but for people listening generally, we have a chance to request what players we'd like to speak to at the end of the third quarter. And it's just a list of basically any player that you can think of. It doesn't mean every single player is going to come out, but oftentimes the majority of them do. And certainly after a win, uh, almost all of them do come out. And there may be times where you get 12 players. So this was a very different setting against Ohio State. And, and you can take it from here. Yeah, so obviously that's the number you usually get. Uh, the only players that came out and spoke were Nick Herbig, Graham Mertz, Keanu Benton. Those three are captains, and they felt it to, they wanted to take it upon themselves to answer for the loss because they uh, are the leaders of the team, and they and you know that's kind of what it is. I think it also perhaps, perhaps helps them uh, avoid anybody saying something wrong um, mm-hmm. out of anger. Right out of you know people being dis- displeased and it, you know this kind of you're able to control it a little bit better. Um, now they said it was their idea, and I'll take them at their word for that. Uh, so they, they came out, they spoke for about four minutes. So there was not a whole lot uh, that we got to you know to learn about specifically about the Wildcat, but um, certainly Braylon will be available on Monday, and he did have a, a very nice pass, right? Like he did have the uh, the ten yarder to Jack Eschenbach on third and short. So. Uh, quarterback competition, maybe? No? <laughs> we need uh, a storyline. We need a storyline. So week five, we may have gotten one. Yeah. Also, uh, South Jersey Pete asks, why move Logan Brown to left tackle when he hasn't practiced there since last season? Uh, well, so obviously, anybody that's listening to this cares about the Badgers, so they probably know that uh, Jack Nelson did not play due, in, due to an illness. They're also out without Riley Malman, so they put – Logan Brown, who had been the right tackle the last few weeks, over to the left tackle, a spot that realistically he has played his entire life up until the last six months. And um, so there's there's that. And then Trey Wedig was the right tackle. Uh, Tanner Borderlini also returned and, and was the starting right guard in place of Michael Furtney. But yeah, moving Logan Brown to left tackle, what would have been the other option? You know what I mean? Exactly. Like they, they didn't have another option. I mean, Trey Wedig saw a little bit of time there in the spring, but you know his first start, on the road at Ohio State, probably want to put him in a spot where he practiced more and, and Logan Brown more of a natural left tackle. Not that Trey Wegg hasn't played left tackle in a career. I'm sure he did at high school because that's where they put all the best players. But um, that's that to me is why the reason. I should say that is the reason why. Yeah, my my thought is that it is less to do with Logan Brown and more to do with the comfort level that you want Trey Wedig to have in a huge moment. And according to Pro Football Focus, he had the best pass blocking grade on the team, 86.4. So not not too shabby for your your first major opportunity like that but the options on the left side it was it was Logan Brown so they did what they had to do it's not ideal Jack Nelson you know obviously one of your best tackles one of your best offensive linemen to have him out it's not an ideal situation for a game like that cuz then you got to shuffle the deck a bit yeah, Greg, uh, uh, sticking with the offensive line, Greg says, we're used to having an offensive line to dominate or at least compete with the best teams in the country. Now it seems to be average at best. What happened? Um, he at least acknowledges they're missing their left and right tackle, but would that have mattered? I mean, Jack Nelson's a pretty good darn player. Um, Riley Malman is, is a young, but I think talented yeah. player. Yeah, I spoke to somebody yesterday that they didn't think the drop-off between Trey uh, Weedig and uh, Riley Malman was all that big, but uh, in Riley's your future at right tackle. So, uh, you know, that you certainly would like to have both your starting left tackle, your, your tackles in that game. But overall, offensive line wise, I completely agree. They used to be able to move bodies. I mean, when they were competitive in these games, it was when they were able to dominate in the trenches and they got specifically defensively got owned in the front seven. But uh, offensive line wise, also not a ton of success until 
the game was out of reach. Yeah, I think if you were to ask the top lines that you've seen in you know the Paul Christ era, where does this one rank? It, there's a lot of work to be done, and some of it does have to do with it hasn't been the same group every week. But even even with that, how many lines have we seen in years past where the fifth, the sixth, seventh, eighth dude was an NFL kind of guy? And I think that's part of the challenge too, is you kind of got used to that of they're going to be the dominant preeminent offensive line in the country. They're full of NFL dudes. And it just seems like they haven't, I don't know. It's not fair necessarily to say that these guys haven't developed. Like I'm not there behind the scenes with them every day. I know they're working hard, but it comes down to executing on game day and opening holes for the running backs. And it hasn't been as smooth as, as it, I think people envision that it could be for this line, because I go back to what I said, even in the preseason, why there was, so much enthusiasm about this group because of what you thought they could be on paper. And sometimes that's a challenge. And sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect there when you go back to those recruiting rankings, but on paper, this was one of the most talented offensive lines you had based on what their, the expectations were them out of, out of high school. And it hasn't fully come together. I also think Wisconsin's offensive line, like we've seen in, in multiple years, it's, it takes some time. And then they start to get it rolling. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if in some of these other games, especially against Big Ten West teams, they start to figure it out and and play with a little more consistency. Yep. Uh, Sean says both losses this year to uh, pass-heavy RPO teams. Both times the base defense was just 2D linemen. Couldn't apply any QB pressure or stuff to run. Since we'll see more of these offensive sets this year, can the defense hold up? That is a good question. (laughs) I mean, I feel like... when we generally see Wisconsin's defense exposed, it's against teams that can do that. It's all, all about the speed and space. It's getting them off kilter. It's making you make a one-on-one tackle in space on a Nikia Watson like that. And you whiff and there's a touchdown and, and you lose the game. So I don't necessarily know what the adjustments are. I mean, Wisconsin has generally played a lot of nickel under Jim Leonard and, and they've got a lot of DBs that he trusts. But when you do do that, you aren't able to get as much pressure because you've got fewer guys up there. So I think it's a balance. I think it depends on the game plan. I mean, against Washington state, they went dime. We almost never saw that. They had six defensive backs on the field. The only other time players said they could even remember doing that was the Las Vegas bowl against Arizona state. So some of it I think is, is just how Jim Leonard feels about what he, he believes will be the best way to, to have the defense succeed. And it's not necessarily the same thing every week. Mark says, what's more likely a two and six finish to the season or six and two. His instinct says six and two. Yeah, but he's not sure. But he, he, but he's not sure because there is not a gimme on the schedule right now. You got Illinois at Northwestern, at Michigan State, Purdue, Maryland, at Iowa, and Nebraska before Minnesota. And he says that's where they're going to clinch the Big Ten West. And the <laughs> well, and I don't know. Since- I don't know. I don't know where he's saying they. I, I don't know if he's saying they'll as in Minnesota or they'll as in uh, Wisconsin. I assume Minnesota since I'm being asked to pick specifically between two records and there's nothing in between, I'm inclined to say six and two. And some of that goes back to history, which I suppose isn't fair because it has nothing to do with this year's team. But how many times have we seen Wisconsin win games it's supposed to win against the West division? I know there are some, especially recently where (laughs) you certainly would want to have them back, but 2016, that team was one and two to open Big Ten play, came all the way back and and made it to the Big Ten championship game. The 2019 team, it is different. Those teams were better. Um, well, and the, the, their two losses there were to one touchdown losses to Michigan and Ohio State. But my point is they have been able to respond from being in a yes. poor position because they've got a bunch of West division teams lined up that they may be equally matched and Wisconsin out executes them and out physicals them and does what the Badgers do. So yeah, like those teams were better. I'm, I'm, I'm not disputing that, but the idea is they've done this before and I feel like they can do it again. Now the challenge this year is there are some tough road games and you would say that most of those appear to be toss-ups at this point. On the other hand, Outside of Minnesota, who in the West Division has been all that impressive? Maybe I was rounding into form, but I still go back to those first two games where the Hawkeyes had seven points apiece. Um, Northwestern, I mean, geez, Northwestern and Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Illinois, three and one, but they got to come to Camp Randall this week and win. And same with Purdue. They, they just, they almost lost to Florida Atlantic this weekend. So playing without, playing without Aiden O'Connell, but yeah. And they haven't beaten Wisconsin since 2003. So some of it is like, 
you've got to show me to make me believe that some of these other teams can can beat Wisconsin. And that's why I think that the Badgers still have a pretty good chance to win the West. I, I, I'm not saying they will. I think Minnesota is the favorite at this point. But, you know, they, they've taken care of business for the most part in the West, and the West isn't all that great. Uh, real quick, Vitaly Pasevsky says, are we irrelevant? Is Wisconsin <laughs> irrelevant as a program? Well, has it reached that point? This, so this goes back to expectations. And I, I suppose my question is irrelevancy is not being competitive to win a Big Ten championship, not being competitive to win the Big Ten West. I assume it's probably both. I don't think they're I don't think right now they're irrelevant, but I do think that they risk falling into that category as just another team in the West division. I mean, that's part of what has separated Wisconsin all these years is that they have been dominant in that division um, to give themselves a chance to not be irrelevant, to go to the big 10 championship game. If you get passed up by a couple of those teams, it could be a challenge. So I don't think they're fully irrelevant, but these last few years probably haven't helped uh, with my argument. All right. We're going to give everybody what they want here, Jesse. Uh, my guy Nick Olson says, minus Jim Leonard, realistically, who would be your top choice if a change were made at head coach? <laughs> so we were, so we were, we were joking about this during the game. Um, you know, Jim Leonard has fallen down the pegs or has fallen down the <laughs> list after this performance, right? Um, so that was that was kind of funny. Um, but if you had to say, I mean, if you're forced to to say a name right now, uh, who knows if uh, if this name would be available whenever uh, Paul Chris's time is, is done, but what, what, what are you doing? Here's what's incredible is that if you came up with a list, there would be so many qualified coaches with ties to the program. Uh, it's almost mind blowing that you'd have, you know, not saying they would accept this job because they'd be pay cuts at some of these places, but like Justin Wilcox, Dave Aranda. Um, I mean, Sean Lewis at Kent, Sean Lewis at Kent state. That's my pick. I'm slow playing it. My pick is okay, Lance Leipold. My pick is Leipold. Uh, obviously, the success that he had at Wisconsin Whitewater, everywhere he goes, he's had success. But I'm just going to be real. I grew up in Kansas. I was a Jayhawks fan. I actually went to school there when they went to the Orange Bowl, and you couldn't believe that they were halfway decent. Uh, not even just halfway decent, but like one of the five, ten best teams in the country. What he is doing right now with Kansas is unbelievable. And if you can do that at a place like Kansas and you can win everywhere you go, you certainly can maintain a high level of excellence at Wisconsin. So in a hypothetical world that doesn't exist, <laughs> that would be my pick. Uh, and we'll close with this one. Uh, Mark says, what do you think of the rings of power on uh, prime video? I'm asking because that's what I was watching instead of the final three quarters of this game. <laughs> uh, Mark, I have not yet seen the new episode from Friday, but big fan of it. So it's, it's got my stamp of approval and I completely understand you wanting to watch anything, but uh, <laughs> the last three quarters of that game on Saturday night. I'm assuming you have not seen it. I have not, but let me just okay. say, Mark, I commend you for finding a way to bring joy to your Saturday night because it was evident after one quarter <laughs> that it was not going, you were not going to be fulfilled by continuing to watch that game. So kudos for, for doing something more productive with your evening. Uh, Wisconsin will welcome Brett Bielema back to town on Saturday. Jesse, I know you're a big Bielema guy. Right. You, you, you enjoy talking to Brett. He's a he's a good quote. Um, yep. uh, I know you only covered him, what, two years, but um, he's a fun coach to cover, I think, is what you, you could probably say about him. Um, and I'm interested to see exactly what this looks like. He uh, he is clearly taking this very, very seriously because uh, they were uh, Wisconsin and Illinois were supposed to play in week one this year that before they changed the schedules because of the pandemic and all that. They were supposed to play in, in week one. And so that's why Illinois had that week zero game. And now. This time, they got a Friday night game uh, this this past Friday, so they have an extra day of preparation before Wisconsin. He is going to come in guns a blazing, and uh, I'm interested to see how Wisconsin bounces back. With it, the players said, Grant Mertz said, "You're never going to have seen anybody work harder than our group will in getting back and, and attacking this, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna fix this, and we're gonna, our goals are still all there, and us three up here, Nick Herbig, Keanu Benton, we're going as captains, we're going to, to uh, make sure." We can, uh, you know, get those goals. So saying all right things as usual from Graham, but I'm, I'm looking forward to Saturday. Um, uh, still currently blocked by Brett Bielema, but <laughs> I feel I feel like there's a win there that it might be time. It might be time. 
it would be a monumental moment in your life. I, I, I'm absolutely looking forward to this matchup, and Brett rightfully so should take this seriously. Uh, it's his first time back as a coach at Camp Randall Stadium since the end of the 2012 season. Yeah, I loved covering him. He was a great quote. Sometimes he'd say things that made you scratch your head or that made national headlines, but he always gave you a good answer, and I've talked to him several times in the years since, and and he's certainly enjoyable to talk to. And I, I commend him for what he's been able to do in a short period with Illinois. I know they didn't finish with a winning record last year. They went five and seven, but they beat two nationally ranked teams or um, on the road, which they hadn't done in 20 years. And they're off to a three and one start. So um, a team that's trying to climb the West division ladder, that's trying to overtake Wisconsin. And in order to do that, you have to figure out how to beat the Badgers consistently. And it's going to be fun. Brett Bielma back at the camp. Let's uh, let's see what it's all about. For sure. And Wisconsin very well mean, may need Brett Bielema's help down the stretch uh, the way that Minnesota is looking. And Brett Bielema never lost to Minnesota. So it's possible that he could not, not only obviously Wisconsin, if they can figure out a way to win on Saturday and, and, and get on a bit of a roll, they may need Brett Bielema's help uh, later this year uh, with Minnesota. We'll see. Uh, Jesse, thank you very much. Uh, we will talk again next week. Thanks, Zach. All right. There he is. Jesse Temple from The Athletic. You've been listening to The Camp.